Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Chris Cheney. Chris is the Chief Executive of CW+, the official charity of Chelsea and Westminster Hospital NHS Foundation Trust. Chris, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join join us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Chris. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own for a moment, first and foremost, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it really resonates. So I, I suppose in, in the context of my world, I think leadership is uh, very much around um, being an ambassador and an advocate for the organization you represent um, and also for the people who you represent as well. Um, you know, I think uh, particularly in the times that we're living in at the moment, there is, um, I think you know, the, 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 some of the traditional norms around leadership are being challenged a little bit. The idea of being present and amongst um, your community, your network, mm. your own teams, your own staff. Um, is something that maybe a, a lot of us have become very accustomed to, and being remote now, being at the end of a, at the end of a, a phone line or, or on a on a screen, um, isn't isn't quite the same thing. But ultimately, I think you know that those those kind of qualities of making sure that you are um, you know that you, that, you know as a, as a leader, one represents the best of the organisation you work for. Um, and also speaks for the people who you work with um, and, and hopefully um, is an inspiration to them. Um, you know, I think those things hold true and quite how we and, kind of, and, and the different ways that we can do that in this day and age um, are the things that I think we're all kind of thinking our way through at the moment. Mm. And I think there are going to be some changes in our everyday working practice as a result of this experience, aren't we? Particularly, as you say, that experience of demonstrating leadership from a distance, keeping the communication channels open remotely. Um, is that something that you've had to adapt to yourself, Chris, or given, of course, the nature of the work that you do, has it been very much business as normal over the last few months? No, so I, no, we have had to adapt. So interestingly, um, as, you know, as, as a hospital charity, um, we have, I suppose in, in our team, some people have been um, kind of drawn drawn very much into the day-to-day um, kind of um, response to the COVID-19 mm. crisis. So we've had members of staff on the ground manning health and well-being hubs, looking after our staff. We've had teams on the ground um, working very closely with our kind of estate teams in the hospital to um, make sure that um, our our intensive care environments have been adapted accordingly um, or helping open out new space um, um, for, you know, again, for staff and for patients across the organization. So some of our team have been very, very much kind of in the thick of it, while um, many of us have actually been working totally remote um, and Mm. one or two of us are kind of maybe a little bit in between. So, it's, it, it, it has become uh, a far more um, fractured thing. You know, we, you know, we're, we're a relatively small organisation. There's only 20 of us in our team, um, and uh, we, you know, we're very used to kind of being in and amongst each other the whole time in a, in a, in a nice open plan office where we're all kind of stumbling over each other, and, and that that builds a, a culture and a dynamic of, of, of a way of working. We've had to stop that, but I suppose what has been a counterpoint to that is that during this period we've had. Um, you know, we've had an incredible surge of, of support and incredible kind of um, 
uh, you know, goodwill from across our community. And you know, like many, many hospitals across the UK, um, you know, we've seen people coming forward wanting to help in a whole variety of different ways. So that's given us a, a, a very kind of clear goal and objective to make sure that we're capturing that goodwill and that we're making sure it's being directed to the right place. But also kind of we're building those relationships. We're saying thank you. We're involving people as kind of friends and partners to see how their support is making a difference. And that's kind of given, you know, and that gives us a very kind of solid sense of unity and shared objective. Um, and I think the, you know, the, the, the trick now is can we maintain that kind of dynamic? Even in even in this kind of remote in this remote age that we have, um, while we try and bring in some of our more core programs that we were hoping to do, kind of in pre pre the COVID outbreak, are we still able to kind of maintain that same level of focus? And I think that's that's the interesting challenge as the transition you know, away from the kind of you know, charging around at a thousand miles an hour into a, a more sustainable pace of life again, but while at the same time maintaining that kind of core focus. Um, and that set of kind of shared objectives and, and shared ambitions as an organization and as, and as a workforce. I think that's the, that's the piece that we have to navigate. And I think, you know, that's where the role of leaders in the organization is so important, mm. being able to inspire and, and provide that focus and, and also kind of be supportive because, you know, this is, there's a, you know, this is a, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unforeseen stress and challenge here um, that people, that people are having to cope with. And, you know, uh, it, it, it will, you know, it exacerbates that, you know, we all have good days and bad days in, in life. And, and sometimes, you know, when you are you know, in, in this kind of, in this kind of period of slight limbo that we all feel that we're in, um, I think that can, you know, you, you know, leadership is about supporting people through that and being understanding and understanding that it's not just about, you know, it's not just the pressures of, of their of work per se, it's the pressures of life in the round here and the responsibilities that we all feel very keenly as, you know, as parents or as carers or, um, you know, as homeschoolers or, or whatever it might be. You know, there's, there's an awful lot on everyone's plate at the moment and we've got to be cognizant of that. Mm. I think that's absolutely right, Chris. And um, I think as a leader, um, it's important to, of course, be supportive because those who are showing that form of support and consideration for those around them are those that are going to be getting the best out of their teams at this point in time. And we have heard some incredible stories, haven't we, from both the business world and from various organisations, from the front line as well, of people who've really gone above and beyond during this uh, period and really brought the best out of themselves during this time of adversity. Um, Considering, of course, what you've just mentioned that you've seen there, I can imagine that you've been quite inspired by what you've seen and um, as a leader you've essentially stepped in and offered that support as and when needed absolutely and and you know, I, yeah it, 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 you know, yeah it is you know i like to think that you know i'm surrounded by you know incredibly driven and passionate and capable people i'm very fortunate to have that in in, in my organization but yeah it, there's, there's been new gears found and and, and you know kind of you know, and you know, you've seen people kind of grow into you know, kind of you know, you know embrace responsibility and um, and and become leaders in their own right, and I think mm. that's what's been you know hugely hugely um, you know, hugely kind of you know inspiring for for, for me um, watching you know watching those around you kind of really you know wanting to grow, wanting to wanting to take on that responsibility, um, and wanting to share the burden with our our clinical colleagues, and and you know I I don't. You know, I, I, I mean, I don't need to. I thought, you know, I don't need to say it, you know, that how, um, you know, how 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 remarkable um, you know, the work that you know the clinical teams at Chelsea and Westminster mm. um, have been delivering, and and the enormous pressure 
um, you know, it, it's very hard to it's hard to articulate um, seeing people who are used to working in a high pressure, high stakes kind of environment. Um, you know, seeing seeing that kind of you know, as they kind of going up, you know, not one notch but ten notches, and watching them cope and watching them watching them support one another, and and uh, you know. It's it, it, it's been a, it's been you know there's so much that I feel like I you know I've I've learned watching senior colleagues um, and junior colleagues um, over the course of this period you know responding and and stepping in and making sure that um, as I said you know, everyone is supported and and those people who are and, and when people are finding it difficult that there is a void there is a place for them there is an arm around their shoulder there is somewhere they can go. Um, and 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 somewhere they can, they can be looked after and their needs can be met. You know, in in the heat of the moment, still having that focus on those people around you, as well as obviously the kind of incredible care and compassion in the most difficult of circumstances for patients who are cut off from family and friends who aren't allowed visitors. You know, it's been phenomenal. And 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 I suppose the other the other cohort that's definitely worth mentioning in in this, which um, has just been you know a, a group of people who've just been incredible, was you know the volunteers that we've had in the hospital. You know, we've you know people who've stepped up and and you know offered offered to put themselves in in an incredibly difficult and and potentially dangerous situation. Um, you know. Because they they wanted to make a difference, they as people realised that there were people you know, who 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 needed who needed help, who needed a hand, who needed um, who needed somebody there to talk to, to you know to to to, to help them in you know, to help them through an incredibly challenging time. And and you know the, the the response that we've had from our community of people stepping forward and and volunteering their time to do that, and 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 some of them have become almost kind of full time members of staff. The amount of you know the, the, the generosity of time and, and and the spirit that they've shown, you know that that's been absolutely remarkable. And 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 those people that that group of people should uh, should certainly not be forgotten in all of this. Their their contribution has been fantastic. I think that's incredibly important, Chris, that their contributions are recognised. And it's a valid point that you raised there that a lot of people really during this period have taken on their own form of leadership and really pushed the boundaries, gone out of their comfort zones. And I suppose from this very difficult and very tragic time, that is one real positive that we can take from this, this sense of unity that's really developed in that sense. And hopefully we can certainly take that forward into the year, the future. And I would like to address the future, actually, Chris, before we do wrap things up on the year, the programme today. Um, with regards to yourself and, of course, CW+, and also the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital NHS Foundation Trust itself, um, what do you envision over the course of the next year, for yourselves as we move through the pandemic into the next stage, hopefully emerge from it and begin to look to a long-term future under the new normal that everybody's talking about. Yeah, I, mean, I think that uh, on one level there's a clear road in front of us. On another, there, you know, I think there's there are still, um, you know, that there there are many strands that still need to come together. So, for for you know, for CW Plus, you know, we look at our, you know, we've evaluated our kind of core work you know our arts and health program and how that reaches into the community our innovation program you know testing and evaluating new technologies and digital tools and new ways of working um you know we've looked at um our, our plans to kind of continue to renovate and remodel our clinical estates um, and all of these priorities remain incredibly relevant so you know what we what we're doing in the short term is accelerating our, our program of, of, of um, kind of remodeling 
a number of wards across both our hospital sites um, to make sure that they are um, uh, you know, ready for any future surge that there might be. Um, we, uh, Our innovation team on the ground throughout the pandemic has been incredibly active in terms of onboarding, particularly kind of new, new technologies, remote monitoring tools, remote consultation tools. And we don't want to lose that momentum. So, you know, as we continue, we, we now have a, um, a community of, of patients and clinicians um, and members of the public who want to see their healthcare become, uh, you know, more digitized, who are, has become increasingly comfortable in recent months of, of the idea of actually being able to think about their health um, and care and wellness um, through the kind of digital portals that we have in our pocket or on our wrist or wherever it might be. We've got to kind of continue to grow on that. We know, you know, we've known for some time that that is the, you know, that's the direction that we're heading in terms of healthcare. But there's been a step change now in acceptance and expectation um, in terms of how, how we deliver care, but also how we support individuals to um, and empower individuals to uh, look after themselves as well. Um, so it'd be that self-monitor or you know, work towards prevention of, of contracting disease or generally you kind of, you know, you know, mental and physical wellness. We have a role to play in that and we have a role as a charity and as a foundation trust to, to, to continue to kind of champion that within our community and work with colleagues across um, the healthcare system in our community to try and make sure that that provision is there and where it's not, to try and work with organisations who can help provide it, so that so, so that it is an equitable offer for everybody. Um, I think the other things that we need to think about is, is um, you know, I, I suppose is, is as I said that um, is thinking about how we can deploy some of the work that we that we've done previously in our hospitals out in the wider world, outside of our four walls. So, you know, we, one of the things that we've done with our arts and health program is that we very quickly managed to get online. Um, a whole um, raft of, of, of kind of clinical, uh, of, of creative activities that we would normally be delivering with with um, performers or artists or um, or other kind of you know, um, creative folks um, at the bedside. Um, we've now we've now managed to get that online. We've, we've managed to do that in the space of about six weeks. So again, how can we use that to try and incentivize people um, to um, I suppose to engage? To, to, to engage with us, again, to think about their health and their well-being, to, to find this is something that is, that's enjoyable, and also to engage with their community. Is there, is there ways that we can help bring um, you know, like-minded groups together? Can we work with others to try and do this? So um, I think you know, the, the, over the, the, the coming 12 months, my expectation is that we will continue to look at, um, you know, if we'll continue to work on our physical estate um, significantly. We'll continue to work very closely with um, entrepreneurs um, and innovators, both in our organization and outside of it, to try and bring a new generation of digital technologies to, to bear and also, and also you know, clinical hardware as well, while we're riding the crest of a wave there. Um, and I think the final thing is just thinking about the, you know, the, 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 I suppose the, you know, how we can then share the, and disseminate this, this you know, the, the, the work that we do and, and the work that we, and, and the findings that we make in the process of that. Um, you know, we cannot be, afford to be parochial in this day and age. We can't afford to be in any way, shape or form competitive about this. You know, if we are finding things that are effective, we need, it's our responsibility to share that learning. And that's both, you know, across you know, our colleagues in London, it's across um, NHS Trust across the country, um, and also it's internationally as well. And I think, you know, one of the things about, um, you know, this uh, 
you know, the, the, the new normal, the way of the, this way of communicating is that actually it makes the world a slightly smaller place. Mm. Um, and uh, we already have great friends um, in all, in many corners of the world, from the US to Korea to Japan, um, who um, are we're working with on a number of different projects. And we want to continue to grow that as, out as well and make sure that we're learning from the very best and sharing with them as well. Mm, sounds like there are some incredible plans there, uh, Chris. And, you know, given how informative it's actually been having you on the programme with us uh, today, I think it would be fantastic if at some point in the next 12 months we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see what has changed in the time between and just assess how those hopes have been borne out for sure. I'd, uh, I'd be delighted to. Mm, it'll be it'll certainly be a pleasure for myself, uh, Chris. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us this morning. So I thank you again for taking the time to uh, join us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe until we do touch base again, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, as we well know. Absolutely. And you too. Thank you, Scott. That was Chris Cheney speaking, the Chief Executive of CW+. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, since his retirement, Sir Andrew has taken on the role of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his days as a player, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. During his days as skipper, he also became the England Test captain with the second highest number of victories under his belt in history for test matches. Quite incredible. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking to Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, 
literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and 
to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.